You're listening to the Northside Christian Church Podcast. Find out more about Northside by visiting us online at northsideweb.org. Merry Christmas, Northside. This year, as we have been studying the uh, account of the Christmas story, we have been trying to zero in on significant places. So we've talked about Jerusalem, we talked about Nazareth. Today we're going to zero in on Bethlehem, just a small little place, really kind of an insignificant place, maybe about 300 people when Jesus was born there. Uh, And let's pick it up then in Luke chapter 2. This was a place that people had to travel away to go to uh, other places of opportunity. Luke chapter 2, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem to the town of David because he belonged to the house and the line of David. And so that's why they were coming to this quaint little town, which you really don't, don't expect it because it's just kind of an insignificant little place. And you don't really expect that Jesus, the King of Kings, to be born in a place like this. And especially when you come and there is no room in the inn. He has to be laid in a manger. Uh, you know, no place to stay. Isn't that just like a husband? He didn't call ahead and get reservations. And the only place to stay is in this stable. But like the angel said, or or the shepherd said, look down at verse 15. Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has been told to us. So I want to go to Bethlehem for just a little bit in in our imaginations as as we kind of look at at what Bethlehem is and was. Let's start with the history of Bethlehem. This Christmas story is not the first place that it appears in Scripture. It appears, first of all, all the way back when Rachel, the wife of Jesse, was buried there. So it makes it very, very significant in that regard. It is also the entire book of Ruth takes place in the fields just outside of Bethlehem. Uh, It was also here that King David was anointed king uh, there in in the fields there. So uh, really a lot of rich uh, significance here in Bethlehem. By the way, the the Jewish people have a very guttural sound when they talk. And so the name of Bethlehem is Beit Lachem. And it literally means the house of bread. Now, it's interesting when Jesus grows up and he tells all those I am statements, one of those is I am the bread. Look at John 6, 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And so, isn't that interesting that that is one of the descriptions that he describes himself with, and it's because he's coming from Bethlehem, the house of bread. So very, very interesting. Now, for the devout Christian, uh, people that have the opportunity to go to Jerusalem and Nazareth and Bethlehem, it's just kind of like an opportunity of a lifetime. I've had the opportunity to go before. I'm leading another trip this summer uh, there. Uh, It's just experience of a lifetime. The birth of Christ is really only recorded in two Gospels. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 2 and Luke chapter 2. And they'd give no real exact location of where the birth of Jesus Christ takes place other than that Jesus was laid in a manger. Now, tradition says that it was a certain cave uh, behind a certain home. But to be honest with you, a a lot of the homes back then had caves behind them because that's where they would take advantage of that shelter for their animals. Um, But then something very significant happens. Constantine the Great was converted to Christianity. 
And some of those places then became very important to him. So he sent his mother, St. Helena, uh, there to the, the Holy Land in the 4th century to find out all these special places. So she goes in the 4th century, and she is shown this cave, and she's told the story that this is where the birth of Jesus Christ takes place. Now, uh, with it being the 4th century, somebody's great-grandfather and some of that may have known, and so it would have been tra- passed down through oral tradition. And so she hears this story about where the birth of Jesus took place, and so immediately Constantine orders that a church be built over that location. That was built, and then later somebody enhanced that building, uh, and then Interestingly enough, Arab Muslim invaders came in and they were destroying all the churches, but they did not destroy this church. And the reason for that is because in their Quran, Jesus is mentioned as a holy prophet. And if this is where Jesus was born, then they would spare that church. So it's really kind of interesting. Let me show you a picture of the church. As you go outside, uh, there is this huge a huge, almost like a fortress kind of a wall as you go into this place. It's uh, very unattractive. It's fortress-like, uh, but it's a crusader outside wall. Um, it's a good example of the early Christian basilican construction there. You walk across this large paved uh, courtyard where you see all the people, and you come to this door, which is really significant. Um, it's even smaller than you would realize. Look at this picture, and you have to literally stoop to enter into this, in, into this church. Now, they think that happened in the 6th century because they made it smaller so that it would be easier to defend against the crusaders and people that were coming in. Uh, but what's interesting now, <clears throat> as a visitor to the Holy Land, you have to stoop. In other words, you have to enter into that place with humility and submission as you go into that. And I think it's really kind of interesting significantly, spiritually so. Um, but you go inside... And the inside is very large and very ornate. It's actually divided into two sections. There is a Greek, Greek Orthodox section. I think the other side is Roman Catholic. Uh, and while you're going, you're standing in line getting ready to go down to where the birth of Christ supposedly took place. And one side, they're all dressed in robes and they're shaking incense. And, and then you're standing in line and you go into the back of the church, what seems to be very narrow, very steep cellar-like stairs. And you go down the stairs all the way down to the bottom, which is like the garage of the nativity. And when you get down to that little room, you will see this. Um, It is a marble. uh, It's inlaid with marble. And then that silver star, which is supposedly where the birth of Christ took place. There's all these lamps and these incense that is burning. The room is very small. It's only maybe eight foot tall, less than 13 foot wide. And then you've got a lot of people coming down the stairs, a lot of people that are in that room. And it's almost could be claustrophobic. There's a very heavy atmosphere. There's a lot of incense that's happening down there. It's not uncommon for groups to break out in singing a a Christmas carol or singing a hymn in some way or another. So it's really kind of neat to to see that. Um, But and by the way, that birthplace technically wasn't chosen until the 17th century. So whether it was or wasn't, I don't know. And I I told the first hour, when I've gone over there, I, I kind of feel like mixed emotions just a little bit. Because when they built this church over that, it is nothing like what it was when Christ was here. However, if they didn't build the church there, there's a good chance that we would have lost all those significant sites. So, so it's kind of have mixed emotions in, in looking at some of those things. But the question is, why would, why would God choose 
Bethlehem. It's just a tiny little village on the outskirts of Jerusalem. It didn't seem to have much to offer, but it's one of the things in the the Christmas story, if you really think about it, it just kind of leaves you scratching your head. Why did he choose Bethlehem? You know, it's not the way you would really expect the Son of God to come into this world. Uh, Not only in Bethlehem, this little insignificant town, but also in a manger where the animals are. Um, and, And sometimes you might think, if you kind of think through it, it might seem like, well, Maybe God didn't really think through all this, and maybe he didn't really have a good plan. But that's not the case, because if you read through the Old Testament, you will see, in fact, all the way back to the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, chapter 3, verse 15, is the first messianic prophecy. Look what it says. And I will get put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So the first promise of a Messiah comes in the book of Genesis, and, and from then on, there's hundreds of different prophecies about Jesus Christ coming to the world. So it all points out to this is a very well thought out plan of what God's going to do. But we look at it and think, man, it just doesn't make sense. Why would God do this? Uh, it, it, you know, it, it, it clearly has a plan, but, but sometimes it doesn't, think, it doesn't seem like that. Uh, in fact, when you get to Isaiah, known as the gospel prophet, he's 700 years before Christ. And he has... Uh, hundreds of prophecies about Jesus Christ, very, very specific, um, where he was going to be born, things of that nature. And you almost wonder, did did Isaiah kind of leave scratching his head, like, why Bethlehem? Why why a teenage virgin? Why why would all this take place? Why would Jesus be put in a manger? And and my guess is, sometimes, if you stop and think about it, they may kind of stop and think, God, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? It's hard for us to experience that because we have heard the Christmas story so often that we just kind of come to accept it. We don't really think much about it. Um, and we very much romanticized it. it we, in our minds, we picture this uh, picturesque Norman Rockwell kind of a painting le- that it must have been like. But that really is pretty unrealistic if you think about the actual setting. Um, it's just not what you expect that God would do uh, in becoming a man. And, and Isaiah must have some of those thoughts because at the end of the book of Isaiah, God actually explains something to him. Look at Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so this morning, I want to look at the Christmas story through that lens, that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts, his ways are higher than our thoughts, and we don't always understand that. But I want to try to look back to Christmas story through that lens. Um, I've heard that verse quoted a lot of times, and, and a lot of times the way it's quoted, it's, it's almost like they quote it because life doesn't turn out the way they think that it should. Um, for instance, uh, maybe it's an untimely death. Maybe it's the loss of a job. Maybe it's the, the birth of a special needs child. Maybe it's, it's a, a marriage that, that hasn't gone like you think that it ought to go. And then, then people will say, well, th- that's just, you know, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And, and we just don't understand it. And it's almost given in a spirit of defeat and a, kind of an acceptance of this is just the way life is. And we just kind of accept it that way. Um, and, and we say, well, I guess God just doesn't think the way we think, and, and his thoughts aren't our thoughts, and his ways aren't our ways. And I can't help but wonder, if you think about that, maybe Mary and Joseph had the same kind of thoughts in that 
relationship. And I know they must have known Isaiah 55, that, that his thoughts are higher than their thoughts. But as they, they make this journey from Nazareth, a very small town, to a smaller town, Bethlehem, uh, Mary's riding on a donkey. She's nine months pregnant, and, and she's probably running late. She's nine months pregnant, probably a lot of bathroom stops, okay? Um, and so it, it probably didn't turn out the way that maybe she thought. And I'm sure that Mary, you know, might have thought, God, is this really the way it is? You know, she probably knew that the Messiah was going to come someday, and all, but she probably never thought it was going to be her. And then all of a sudden, the angel appears and says, Mary, you're the one. And I, I think Mary must have just left some of the details up to God. So God's going to take care of his son. And, and then when it turns out the way it turns out, it's not anything like she thought. And I wonder if she thought, God, what, what are you thinking? I mean, think about it. If you're going to bring God's son in the world, you think there ought to be some, like, maybe some special advantages, like no pain, labor, and delivery, you know, something like that. Um, and then that first Christmas, it's kind of hard to kind of understand. God, what are you thinking? Now, you think about it. If we were in charge, how would we do it? Well, first of all, we wouldn't have that stinking census, okay? And it's like, because that's not a really good time for Mary and Joseph to be traveling with, with God's son, all right? Well, and if you have to have a census, then everybody has to go to the census except anybody that's named Mary and Joseph. So they wouldn't have to go on this census. Um, uh, it, difficult travel. Uh, riding nine months pregnant on a donkey. It's like, come on, if we were in charge, we'd, we'd chosen Gabriel Airlines or something. She could buy a ticket and fly, fly there. Um, but it didn't turn out the way that she thought. Uh, and then you get there, and there is no room in the inn. I think if I were God and I was in charge of things, I would probably switch things up a little bit, and there would be a mistake in the reservations, and they would end up in the presidential suite. I mean, after all, it's God's son. But none of that happened the way that we think that it ought to happen. His thoughts are not our thoughts, and his ways are not our ways. Um, in our culture, we so romanticize uh, the whole thing. I mean, we put on music, we put on lights, and, and uh, we listen to Christmas music, and we put the decorations up, and, uh, you know, we, we think about that, oh, how sweet. You know, she's giving birth and laying him in a manger, and the cattle are lowing, whatever lowing means. And it's like, wait a minute, a cow in the delivery room? If you're a woman and your mom gives birth, that is a problem, okay? You don't have cows in your delivery room. And, and, and so it's like, God, what are you thinking? Um, <clears throat> Uh, we, we do a lot of romanticized things. Uh, in fact, at this season, there's a lot of people, I don't, don't raise your hands, but there are a lot of people out there, a lot of homes that have scented candles for Christmas. You want your house to smell like, like Christmas, right? And they have all kinds of Christmas candles. In fact, I looked up some of the different scents. Um, first one came to my mind, apple and cinnamon, cinnamon and spice. Um, um, there's other ones I looked up, Christmas uh, uh, cookies. Holiday Classic, Candy Cane, Home for the Holidays, Gingerbread. I even found Pumpkin Spice. Wait a minute. That should be for Thanksgiving. Pumpkin Spice is still around? It's like, I'm convinced. Some of those candle smells, they're, they're probably the result of a lot of weight gain during the Christmas time, right? Oh, that smells like pumpkin pie. I'll take another piece of pumpkin pie, right? You know, there's candles. But, uh, you know, now they have one called a Nativity Scented Candle. Now, I want you to think about it. What does a nativity smell like? You know, I am sure it doesn't smell like a wet dog or wet animals, okay? Um, uh, but that's what they do. Um, by the way, in the list of this, there is actually something, I don't know if you ever heard of this, true. There are things called mandals, okay? Candles for men. 
There's actually a website. You can check it out after church. Don't do it now while I'm preaching. But um, there, there's this thing called Mandel's. Not many men would go out of their way to go buy a scented candle. Uh, it it kind of like go buy themselves a bouquet of flowers or something. It just doesn't going to work. But, um, you know, there's probably not a large market for that. However, I looked down through this website. I thought it was kind of interesting. Here's some of the candles that are on the list. The carnivore. Okay, that makes sense. Um, here's another one. The dirt bag. <laughs> Listen to how it describes. This is on their website. Does your man need you in his life simply because he's a disaster without you? You can't find the floor in his bedroom. Dirty dishes fill the countertops. His bathroom is filled with whiskers. Maybe you've even uh, sneaked over there to clean it up because you can't stand the smell or you're embarrassed to have company. Um, here's another one. The mama's boy. Is your man the sort of guy that still takes his laundry to his mother to be washed? There's one called auto shop. Smells like an auto shop when you light it. One called the bass fishing. Uh, here's one I think probably be a favorite slab of bacon. Uh, you know, but it's the Mandel's approach. Now, if they're going to have a nativity scented candle, here's, I think, probably some that would work. Shepherd sweat. <laughs> Dirty donkey. Camel dung. You, you know, think we, we romanticize this thing. But when you think about how it really was, and this is God's son, you think, God, what are you thinking? It, it, it doesn't make sense to us. Uh, and of all places, why Bethlehem? Why go to this little podunk place that we don't really understand? Why not Rome? Why not Jerusalem? Why not Alexandria? Why not Greece? But, but it goes to Bethlehem. Uh, you know, I'm sure Mary and Joseph must have understood this. You know, when they gave birth, and if they come out of that cave, do you know one of the things they probably could see in the distance? Herod the Great's palace. It was the third largest structure in Jesus' day. Um, the, uh, uh, it stood 90 foot tall. The palace itself covered 45 acres of ground. And there were some 200 acres of palace grounds surrounding the palace. Now, I wonder on that first Christmas if Mary and Joseph walked out of that cave with the baby Jesus, the king of kings, and they looked up, and here's this palace, and it's like, man, that's where he should have been born. It's like he's born in the manger. God, what are you thinking? Why Bethlehem? Why a stable? Christian author Mac Lucado, uh, Max Lucado wrote it this way. He said, this isn't the way I planned, God, not at all. My child being born in a stable, this isn't the way I thought it would be. A cave with sheep and donkeys, hay and straw. My wife giving birth with only the stars to hear her pain. This isn't at all what I imagine. No, I imagine family. I imagine grandmothers. I imagine neighbors clustered outside the door and friends standing at my side. I imagine the house erupting with the first cry of the infant. Slaps on the back, loud laughter, jubilation. That's how I thought it would be. The coming of the angel, I accepted. The questions people ask about the pregnancy, I can tolerate. The trip to Bethlehem, fine. But why birth in a stable? Why, God? Now, maybe, maybe Joseph never prayed a prayer like that. But maybe if we could be honest, maybe we have. Maybe not in a stable, but maybe in an emergency room. And something's gone wrong and we think, why? Why, God? Or maybe the pressure of a courtroom. Or maybe the quietness of a sanctuary. Or maybe we pray that prayer on the well-manicured lawn of a cemetery. 
when life hasn't turned out the way we thought it would turn out. And we question God. We thought we'd be married by now. We thought that we'd find some work. We thought by now certainly we'd be pregnant. I thought, God, that you could turn my family around. And it's not that we want to second guess God. Um, you want to have faith and you want to believe. But it's just so hard sometimes because it's so hard to understand. I don't understand, God. What were you thinking in this? So the question is, why Bethlehem? Why did God choose Bethlehem? Here's the answer. Because God can. He doesn't need Rome to accomplish his purposes. He doesn't need the high and the mighty and the significant to do what he is going to do. God does some of his best work in places like Bethlehem. Bethlehem was an insignificant town, and it was only made significant because of what God chose to do in that place. Look at another prophecy from the Old Testament, the book of Micah. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. You know, it's, it's just, Bethlehem's just this little suburb of Jerusalem, it's like you wouldn't even know where it is. Uh, Paul and I have a friend that was in the last service. She goes to church here. She's from close to our hometown. She's from a place called Freeport, Indiana. Anybody ever heard of Freeport? Oh, we've got a couple. It's like, where is Freeport? You know where Freeport is, by the way? It's right in between Morristown and Fountaintown. It's like, where? It's like, you, nobody knows where that is, hardly, a few people. No, it's, it's, 20 miles southeast of Indianapolis. Oh, okay, we know where Indianapolis is. That's kind of the way you would describe Bethlehem. Nobody really knows where Bethlehem is, but they know where Jerusalem is. And it, but it, the only thing that made it significant is because of what God did in that place. Um, and he does. Uh, it, it's almost like God is, is purposely stacking the deck against himself. Now, why would he do that? Let's answer it this way. Let's call this the Bethlehem effect. His most unlikely places to do the most incredible things. He chooses the most ordinary people to accomplish the most extraordinary things in life. And why does he do that? Because he can. Because he is all-powerful. He is God. Because if it, 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 if it was about us, and if it was about where we were born and how we were born and the family we were born into, then it wouldn't necessarily be about God. But this is about God and what he does. It's not about Bethlehem not about a manger. It's about the power of God. Look back at Luke chapter 2 for a second. Look at verses 8 to 12. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. I don't know if we can really grasp how insignificant and unimportant the shepherds were. But the shepherds were not hardly even considered people. They worked with animals, they ate with animals, they slept with animals, they smelled like animals, and they treated people treated them like animals. Now, can you imagine the angels say, okay, God, we are ready to go to earth and make this announcement of your son being born to this earth. What kings are we going to go to? What palaces are we going to go to? And he looks down and says, you see that group of shepherds down there? That's where I want you to go. Now, can you imagine the angels? It's like, God, what are you thinking going to the angels? Um, it, it just absolutely amazes me. Why does he do that? Because he can. 
He chooses sometimes the most insignificant people and places and circumstances to accomplish his purposes. I wonder sometimes if the shepherds outside the Bethlehem that night wondered the significance of where they were. Do you know there was something else that happened there in that place years ago? Samuel was sent to that area to anoint the second king of Israel. He goes there and he goes to Jesse. Jesse has several sons. He says, one of your sons has been chosen to be the next king. And so Jesse lines up all his sons. There was a slew of them, okay? And, you know, from the oldest, the most mature, the most experienced, all the way down. And Samuel, one by one, goes through each of these children. And no, he's not the one. He's not the one. He's not the one. And he gets to the very last one. He's not the one. And then Samuel turns to Jesse, say, don't you have any more sons? Well, yeah, there's one. But he's out with the sheep. He doesn't even call him a shepherd. He's out tending sheep. Samuel says, go get him. Bring him in. So he brought David in. And when he sees David, he says, he's the one, the next king of Israel. Now, can you imagine? You have a shepherd years ago that becomes the king of Israel, which is almost prophetic in itself that Jesus Christ would announce to the shepherds and he would be the shepherd of his people, become the people, the king of Israel. Look at verses 15 and 16. When the angels returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go right now to Bethlehem and see what has happened. Let's confirm what the Lord has revealed to us. They quickly found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. So now it's not just why Bethlehem. It's not just why the shepherds. Now it's like, why Mary? Mary didn't have anything in her resume that would have said, hey, choose me. Uh, Why? Why? Here's the question. Why such simple beginnings? Why does God do that? Uh, why Mary? Mary didn't have much to offer. She, she came from Nazareth. She didn't have anything in her resume that would, would entrust God to let her raise her little boy. Uh, the Bible doesn't even say much really about Mary at all. She rarely even has a speaking part. Uh, really, we only read about her in the Christmas story here. Um, in fact, uh, why would God choose her? They were so poor. Remember when they took Jesus to the, to the temple? Uh, they were to offer a sacrificial lamb. But the book of Leviticus says if you are too poor to offer a sacrificial lamb, then you can offer two doves. And that's what they offer. They offer two doves. Now you think about it. They do not have a sacrificial lamb to sacrifice for the sacrificial lamb. And it's like, isn't that interesting? And God chooses them. Why? Because it's an opportunity for God to demonstrate his power. Paul in 1 Corinthians says, God chooses the weak and he chooses the foolish that are foolish in our eyes so that the world, so that nobody can boast before him because some of his greatest work is done in weakness and in foolishness. God chooses the ordinary people to accomplish some of the most extraordinary things. Listen to this long list out of the Bible. Abraham, who's going to be the father of the Jewish nation, he waited till he was almost too old to have children. Actually, he was too old. His wife was really too old too. Uh, For Jacob, Jacob was insecure. Leah, she was more unattractive than her two sisters. Moses stuttered. Gideon was poor. Samson was proud. Rahab was immoral. David had an affair. Jeremiah was depressed. Jonah was disobedient. Naomi had a widow, was a widow. John the Baptist was extentory. 
to say the least. Uh, Peter was impulsive and hot-tempered. Martha worried a lot. The Samaritan woman had several failed marriages. Zacchaeus was unpopular. Thomas had doubts. Paul was in poor health. And the list goes on and on and on. Why would God choose people like that? It's to show that it's not about them. It is about God and the power of God. That's why he chose Bethlehem to reveal that all powerful God can work in any situation to accomplish his purpose. If Jesus were born in a big city, People might think, well, you'd be born at the right place, the right time, you know, God can do good things. If he was born into an influential family, people may say, well, look what can happen when you come from an influential family. If he was born into wealth, well, look what you can do if you have a lot of money. Uh, but, but he wasn't. Um, a, a town nobody really knew called Bethlehem to a teenage girl from Nazareth whose fiance was a carpenter and he was laid to rest in a feeding trough. And the only conclusion you can really draw is, look what God can do. Look what God can do in our life. Now, if he can do that in Bethlehem, he can do that in Wadsworth. And he can do that in Medina. And if he could do that with Mary, then he can choose us. And if he chose the shepherds, then he can choose us to accomplish his will and his purpose. Look, why? Why would God do that, all of that? Here's, I think, the answer. Because you belong. You belong to God. Sometimes we look at our life and we think, God, what are you thinking? Things haven't turned out the way that it ought to be. Um, you know, I'm not financially secure. I don't really have a good job. My marriage is in trouble. Uh, sometimes as parents, you just feel overwhelmed. And you think, God, what are you thinking? You thought it'd be different than this. You feel less than ordinary, that you have nothing to offer, nothing to bring. But it's because you belong. And as he said, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be to all people, that for you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. One of our Christmas hymns that we sing is, O little town of Bethlehem. The last verse goes like this. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born to us today. And my prayer is for some of you that you would be born again like that. But I want to remind you, as you go into that church of nativity, the only way you can go in is that you stoop and you go in with humility and submission to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he will make a new person out of you. Because it's not what we have to bring. It's what God can do in and through our lives. Let's pray. God, help us to know that like Bethlehem, like Mary, like the shepherds, like Joseph, we really don't have much to offer in and of ourselves. Oh, sometimes in American pride, we think we do, but we don't. So help us today, through this Christmas season, perhaps to just come bowing